Hello and welcome to this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The City Born Great by N.K. Jemisin, The Mortal Engines Movie, and City of Lies by Sam Hawke. And welcome to episode 31, a podcast of three cities. I'm Alex, and I'm Atlantis. I'm Freya, and I'm Riverside. I'm Macy, and I, of course, am Ankh Morpork. To no one's surprise whatsoever. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, in addition to being cities, we are also three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we are talking about uh, cities. We are talking about cities this week. Lankmar, Minas Tirith, Night Vale, and Vorbar Sultana. Many, many great cities and why cities work so well as a story setting. But first, what are we reading, Pillar Serpents? This week I fell headfirst into watching the first <laughs> season of The Magicians, the TV show. Mm. I've never actually mm. read the books that they're based on, and I don't think I want to. I think I'm happy to keep absorbing it by television but unfortunately yes. having now reached the cliffhanger that is the end of season one i now can't watch any of season two because i made the mistake of wrapping it up as my personal word count goal for when i reach sixty thousand words on my new novel no it's a cliffhanger <laughs> i thought you'd reached it i haven't oh, it's, it's, it, i mean it's it's kind of cliffhanger it's like everything has gone to shit now what uh... yeah sorry sorry macy <laughs> Anyway, once I have written some more of my book, I will get back to you about the next season. I have also been reading The Wicked King by Holly Black, which is the second book in her YA trilogy. And also I read a graphic novel called My Favorite Thing is Monsters, which I did not realize was the first volume of a duology. And I was quite confused mm. when there was still a lot <laughs> left unresolved at the end. Uh, it's by Emil Ferris and it's a sort of fake graphic diary of a young girl living in Chicago in the 1960s and it's a murder mystery and it's got a heap to do with sort of uh, pulp fiction and monster stories and growing up and her relationship with herself as like a queer young girl coming of age. Mm. It's very dark. It's got quite a lot of dark content. Um, so I, if you are triggered by various things, I'd probably have a look online to get a sense of a content warnings, but mm. really, really impressive. And I'm really looking forward to the next volume. Whereas I this week have been reading the gloriously titled Symphony for the City of the Dead, um, which after I spent a large chunk of time lecturing Alex on exceedingly dramatic Russian composers the other week, uh, this seemed appropriate. It's a narrative nonfiction about Shostakovich's uh, Leningrad Symphony, which was actually composed during the siege of Leningrad in 1941 and was smuggled out of the con out of the country on microfilm to America and was this huge like espionage propaganda victory thing. Cool. And so that's super cool. And I also fell into Magician's Hell um, with Freya Sorry, the other Macy. weekend. <laughs> it's fine. I got like most of my last chapter done out of it, and I am nobly pacing myself to accompany Freya in her misery um, because I really want her book and this way I can poke her to reach 60,000 words even faster. Mm. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Um, I would like to declare to everyone that I have a very snuggly cat on my lap right now. It's very important. Uh, purring up a storm. Um, I don't, you probably can't hear her on the microphone, but she is extremely cute. And that was the most important thing that you guys needed to know. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm having a little bit of like end of winter blues where like the sun hasn't really come back yet and it's still cold. And so my attention span is completely shot to hell. I have been having a really hard time concentrating for more than like 30 seconds at a time and so I have not read anything this week I have not watched anything of note this week uh it took me all day yesterday to write a thousand words but you know sometimes it be like that sometimes so, it do sometimes it do um but we're gonna have fun uh today uh so let's dive into the episode I think yes. Macy had a question to get us started I do have a question it's uh Macy's deceptively obvious question corner love that corner <laughs> the best corner this is where I ask you guys a question that you refuse to answer yep okay Classic tradition what's a city we know what the fuck a city oh, is okay what's are we city, going Alex? by all right, all right. definition is that what's happening here <laughs> 
I love cathedral definition. Cathedral definition's pretty good. What's cathedral definition? What did I miss? Macy, explain cathedral definition. Rude. What? So um, this is possibly a Commonwealth thing, but basically a city is a city if it has a cathedral in it. Oh, only That's the only way okay. one becomes a city because um, it used to be basically your diocese had to be important enough, right, to mm-hmm. have the right shape of priest which I believe is bishop right. for bishop matches cathedral. I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. And so you became a city basically in the eyes of the church authority by being important mm. enough to have a bishop who needed a big stone box to live in because bishops are basically right. cats. And it would ba- um, and it yes. would usually correspond to a population mass or a population density. Yes. Um, I will note, darling listeners, this is a terrible definition of a city. Would somebody oh, yes. like to try again? <laughs> no, I like that one. <laughs> Freya is now disqualified. Do it have a cathedral? <laughs> a city is a no cathedral, area. no city. Shut up, Macy. <laughs> I'm trying here. <laughs> a city is an area of land where a bunch of people live in quite close proximity to each other. Uh, it's larger than a town, which is larger than a village. Which is larger than a settlement. There you go. Lovely. Does it have to be on land? I'm using land sort of in a loose context. Physical, physical <laughs> space. A physical space. Yes, that's what I meant by land. So I will argue also that to me, a city has to not just have a large population, but it has to have in some ways a non-uniform population. Okay. Like How so? Most cities have a degree of mixing of social class, of Mm -hmm. race, of uh, civilization. They are trading posts. Um, It's hard to imagine Milton Keynes as a city. Yeah, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I think that it's also usually a significant center of government too, because it's not just a trading post, right? It's like trading post plus lots of government. You have like an intersection of many parts of life happening in a city. Mm, I, would, right. I would say that yeah, right. the ability to exert some kind of power over the surrounds or at least to either draw Ooh. on them as well would be an important thing. I wouldn't say it necessarily has to be uh, heterogeneous. I think you can make an argument for certain types of fictional cities in particular that are because of what they are and how they are, they are less to do with that mixing. I'm thinking of something like the capital in the Hunger Games, where they are standing for a particular social class instead of mixing social classes. I don't want to get too deep into this. I mean, I will say the capital has servants. That's true. fair enough. Like, I think that once you have a city... um, the pressure, the, the the pressure cooker that it is, creates those different stratifications, even if they mm-hmm. weren't there to start with. That's for me. That's part mm. of it. But also, I really love your point about a city having vassals, almost having a land or an area or a population around it that it exerts control over. And I'd love to talk more about that later mm. on. Um, but I think that we'd like to also quickly. Describe our tent poles so that we can talk a bit more about some of our ideas around city in fiction and city as character. Yes. I think each of us is going to very um, briefly introduce one of the tent poles. Uh, and then instead of doing a deep dive on them one at a time, we'll just uh, use them as basis and jumping off points for our general discussion about cities as character. So the first tent pole is the book City of Lies by Sam Hawke, mm-hmm. which is about a city that go becomes under siege that's essentially what the kind of the story is the basis of it is that it's told from the point of view of two characters uh, Jovan and Kalina whose family job essentially is to be poison tasters for the chancellor for the ruler of the city and the country and it's about what happens when the city becomes under siege and a few of the illusions that are holding up life in that city begin to fall apart as the main characters mm-hmm. and their friends find out more about the history of the city and what led up to its being built and to the privileged, cosy, uh, not very violent life that they currently lead. And one of the things that I did like about this city is that the way that it's described throughout the book really helps you paint a picture of it. It's very visual and it's very visually striking. One thing that sometimes gets forgotten in fictional cities is architectural landmarks 
Everything kind of becomes, I feel like authors think about like the mood of their city and the general feeling of their city, but they don't always think that, oh, there's going to be a St. Paul's Cathedral type thing. There's going to be an Empire State Building. What does this civilization consider to be their landmarks? And this city very much did have that. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really liked the, the ways that there's a few things about uh, city as character that it touched on, which obviously we'll get to later, but my favourite ones were definitely that uh, that really strong sense of place and that you got a sense for what the city itself was like um, and also the city as a self-contained unit in a larger mm-hmm. nation. Cool. So uh, the did you have anything else you wanted to say about that? No, I think we'll um, – anything else, we'll bring it we'll up as we get, it later. get up to it. Uh, so the second tentpole that we are talking about this week is the movie Mortal Engines. Um, I believe I read the book Mortal Engines way back when I was in college, but I don't remember much of it. I can say that I um, quite enjoyed the movie. It is kind of a, a dystopian far future where there has been a massive nuclear war and in the western part of the world they have kind of adapted to life in this post-nuclear war apocalypse landscape by building these mobile walking cities. These predator Uh, cities. These predator cities. They're like (gasps) giant, giant tanks with cities built on top of them. And they're enormous. And they go um, roaring across the land to gather resources and consume other cities. Uh, And the, the... first part of of the movie takes place in quote-unquote london it's not london as we know it it's this adapted predator city london and the movie began and i don't know if it actually had this thought that it was trying to pull this thing off or if it was just me having wishful thinking that i wanted to see it do this um but it was really really well set up to have some amazing commentary about imperialism and colonialism because you act like you quite literally have these civilizations chasing down and consuming other yep. smaller civilizations, right? Yeah, it's not um, like, exactly it's a subtle just metaphor. Real on the nose. No, no, it's not. Um, I don't know that I think that the end. Actually, I can be honest with you. The end didn't pull it off quite as well as I wanted it to. It, it didn't sort of wrap up the the uh, commentary on colonialism in as effective a way as it could have. Right. Um, it got kind of mm, uh, at the end. It, it didn't commit to the aesthetic, uh, shall we say. Uh, but it was really fantastic. And also, I just have to take a moment <laughs> to mention my bisexual awakening, Anna Fang. <laughs> Alex is 0.1% mosey up the Kinsey scale. She, this character, Anna Fang, uh, she has sunglasses and an amazing sky ship and sky high hair and like 12 guns and amazing coat. And like the second that I saw her, I was like, who is this? She's the coolest person I've ever seen. And I felt myself go like a millimeter up the, the Kinsey scale. She is pretty amazing. I love her. I, had, I have such a crush on Anna Fang. That's all I want. She's the best part of the movie, hands down. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. The The movie is has these great action sequences as well that I really oh, enjoyed. Yes. It has so much like, we're going to do parkour on a sky city that's on hell, fire. Hell yeah. While being chased by a cyborg zombie dad. Yep. Why not? <laughs> I was I was very impressed by the way it's kind of turned into a Star Wars film halfway through, which I was not expecting, but I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Little bit. Little yeah, bit. Yeah, it kind I of did. It. Uh, but the you're right, the aesthetic of those giant cities and the thought that went into the visual design, I think, was really impressive. And it definitely also is a totally different twist on what you were saying earlier, Freya, about a city kind of feeding off its surrounding villages and population because here we have cities quite literally devouring um one another but that the driving force behind the plot is that they're running out of smaller cities to eat yes and i want to say this was something the movie shortened from the book i feel like there were conflicts between other great cities in the book yeah I and in this one there's that. only giant london 
and the anti-tractionists. Also, what's that that phrase, municipal Darwinism? Yes! Is that the phrase that they use? My God, what a great phrase. What a great fucking phrase. Municipal Darwinism. Municipal Darwinism. Wonderful. Oy vey. And of course it's London. I mean, it has to be London. Yeah, because like imperialism and shit. If we're talking about devouring one's children. Right, right. right. Like it had to be London. It had to be London. Anyway, let's move on to the next and shortest of our tent poles. Uh, Did you guys enjoy this one? Oh my God, so much. Really, really good. I love this story. I read this when it first came out and I was so glad to get a chance to read it again. I'm glad that you suggested it as a tentpole because it's great. This is the short story, uh, N.K. Jemison's short story called The City Born Great, which you can find on Tor.com for free and everyone should read it. It's mm-hmm. just a masterclass in getting so much across in such a small space and using voice to convey yes. character. Yes. And this is a short story set in a world where great cities of the world have an awakening they are born when they reach a certain amount of sentience i suppose you could say yeah it's like it's like size crossed with the time that they've existed and i feel like the the consciousness of their populace their their the strength of their identity Mm. Mm -hmm. it's this amalgamation of everything that makes a city into a city becoming sentient and when these great cities are birthed or like gain self-awareness, they are for a moment, very briefly, vulnerable to this devouring enemy belief. And that's when this story takes place, is at the birth of New York City. And New York City's bonded human midwife is a homeless gay black youth, and he becomes everything that the city is and kind of embodies New York City and has to fight to save his city from being devoured. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yeah, I absolutely love stories that are a person becoming an avatar or a channeling force for anything, (gasps) if it is like the natural world, but cities as well. And oh, that was so good. We all like, love the, that, Freya. You know I love this. I'm obsessed. You know I love it too. <laughs> obsessed with this as a theme, um, but ah. the just that that climactic scene of person and city and the boundaries between them blurring in order to be able to fight yes. was incredible. Like this idea of pounding someone with the entirety of Queens, just the yes. <laughs> of Queens. Yep, it was amazing. And it's. It's so New York, right? I know that there's a lot of pieces of fiction that try to like embody the the place that they're representing, but this whole story, like, oh, I think that you would have to, I mean, obviously you would have had to live in New York City for a while to be able to write this, but also like there's living in a place and then there is loving a place and right. embracing a place. And I think that kind of brings us to the next topic that we have, mm-hmm. which is the relationship between uh, character and setting. Does anyone want to kick us off? Do you guys have any cool questions for us to begin with? What is the relationship between a character and the city that they dwell in? What different kinds of ways can we anchor characters in a place and a civilization? I think that draws on why do people write stories set in those places? Because if you're using a real city as your basis, mm-hmm. then I think you're absolutely right. There has to be that element of knowing something inside and out so that there is love there, but you can also be very aware of your city's foibles and interesting dark niggly bits so that you can describe mm-hmm. them. And I think the best speculative stories that involve cities involve a character who has that relationship with their city, even if it is an invented mm. city that dynamic of love mixed with resentment mixed with just what it's almost familial sense of having lived together so long and like shared dirty laundry and rubbed up against one another for a long time that's what makes a really good city because if you're using a narrator who knows the city that well then you get a sense of place right it's like um no one no one insults my little sister but me exactly right and I'm thinking most specifically of Sam Vimes and Agnor. Oh, I love Sam. Oh, because perfect, he's such a city perfect, yes. character in the Discworld books. And every time you remove him from the city, he gets cranky about it. But he also has this great sense of ugh towards the city itself. And there's all the conversations that take place between him and the patrician about 
the meaning of the word policeman and politician and man of the city and what they actually share as their sort of moral driving force is this sense that everything that they do is to make the city better. And I think for me, one of the most abiding sensory details from any book I've ever read, ever from any book I've ever read, is Sam Vimes and feeling the cobblestones through his boots. I was just about to bring up that same thing. Yes, right. That's such a perfect kind of microcosm of the relationship that he has with Ankh Morpork. Yes. So, if you haven't read the the Discworld or the City Watch books, um, he this is a duty-bound policeman who has spent so long walking the city that he can tell through the soles of his boots exactly where he is by the size and shape and distance of the cobblestones that he's walking on. Yeah. And just that kind of intimate knowledge of place and also what it means to be in that place. Oh, not just I'm on this lane, but I'm on this lane, which means I'm in that territory of these people, which means that, etc., etc., is that plot significant later when he gets like blindfolded and he can yeah. tell where he is because yep. like where he's he's being dragged off to? Yeah. You, if you give a character a particular skill, you use that skill. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, I think you can also get a lot of mileage out of secondary speculative cities if the point of view character is a newcomer, because it means that you can mm. describe things through fresh eyes. And I'm thinking of City of Stairs, which was one yes. of our recent tent poles with and thinking about it in this one if there is something weird or strange about a city that everyone who lives there and has lived there takes for granted, then you can, it depending on, depends on what type of story you want to tell, but sometimes using a narrator who can see everything fresh can be useful as well. But I think that there's something for me that is special about a character who is so intertwined with their city that it kind of rips something out of them to remove them from that context and they carry it with them, which I think, Alex, is a little bit linked to your kind of representation of country ideas. Yeah, so um, I think that we can't talk about uh, the rela- relationship between character and setting without talking about one of my favorite things, <laughs> uh, the hero scamos, of Everyone course. Everyone drink. <laughs> Everyone take a drink. Uh, sip, don't chug. <laughs> Yes, there's probably very little in the way of our normal um, drinking game items in this episode, but this one, but this one, but this one, but this one. So if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, you should definitely go do that. (laughs) Um, But just to give everyone a little bit of a refresher, the uh, Hiros Gamos is a Greek term that means sacred marriage. It's a uh, term from mythological studies, and it is... The, the core idea of it is that the relationship between the king and the queen is symbolic of the relationship between the king and his country. Um, so if the, the royal marriage is happy and healthy and productive and usually fertile, then uh, the, the land will prosper and uh, the crops will flourish uh, and everyone will be happy and well. Um, I think that I am really interested in that second half of the relationship, the relationship between, or in the second half of the uh, the metaphor here, uh, which is the relationship between ruler and country or avatar and city. Um, this is a really good way that, to talk about uh, the city born great, for example, mm-hmm. um, because you, and I think it goes back to, to what I said before about like how you have to love a place. The city born great doesn't use it or doesn't frame it in these terms, um, but the narrator has a bound relationship to the city, which could be framed as a marriage in some senses, right? I think that they use the midwife metaphor generally. Okay. Yeah, but the same. But there's this intimate bond. Yeah, and it and it extends yeah. beyond the birth itself because at the very end of that yes. story, you see the narrator now in L.A. And he is there to find the chosen midwife slash avatar of Los Angeles as it be- as it becomes a sentient city. And he has this sense of being able to sense New York, even though it is far away on the other side of the country. Well, you get this also through the mentor in that story who we just we just learn of as Paolo, but is Sao Paulo. Yeah. Um, but I think another example from that story, which really illustrates this marriage concept, is the example of New Orleans. Right. Oh, yes. It... Which was stillborn. So uh, the implication being that it tied together with the events of the hurricane with Katrina and the city was about to be born, but lost that battle. 
and that losing the metaphysical battle had an influence on the physical city. Yes, yes. And there's that line about how, like, the the darkness gets one good punch in or something, and there's a an earthquake in New York, and one yes. of the bridges falls. Yeah, and so people it die. definitely has, and people die. Yeah, so it definitely has real world consequences. And there's definitely something in thinking about you know, the history of cities. There's always going to be that darkness in the history. Like if you think about London and the fires of London and the plagues of London, there's always times in which there was des- desolation and times in which there was trouble. And if you're thinking about the Heros Gamos. I think part of the narrative of a city is like the narrative of empire. There's an expected point at which you reach a certain mass where there are pockets of ruin and pockets of poverty and pockets of darkness and crime, like if you're thinking of big fictional cities. And that's not necessarily showing that something is desperately wrong and before it reaches a certain point, but it's part of the absolute fabric of a city. You have to have those pockets. And I think that I was reading something, I think it was in Trail of Lightning, um recently about how london has just as much in the way of ruins as tenochtitlan does but we don't mm. think about it that way because london built in and around and over those ruins whereas tenochtitlan the people died were killed and so we see it as this desolation where we don't see london as a desolation even though there's just as much there that's ruined yeah mm. and athens and rome walking through both of those you have this incredibly strange sense of ancient ruins that are literally, you know, there's space around them because they are keeping them as respect for history and respect for tourist tourist dollars rather than actually just knocking them all down. But right next door is the skyscraper. You've got all those different types times of history existing at once. I think going back to the Heros Gamos for a minute, um, that to me Heros Gamos is something that is pre-modern, the relationship being quite so individual and as we've grown in population size, we get to something that's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more people involved than a single king-queen marriage, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the marriage with a city really is the whole population. Is a city architecture? Is a city its people? When is a city more than just the things that make it up? I'm just trying to think if you can have a story that is about a city with no people, and I think all of those ideas of ghost cities and abandoned cities have power because of a sense of loss, because of what right. what is left yeah. behind says about the people who built it and who lived there. So I think you can't divorce the two. You have to have both. You have to have the physical environment and the infrastructure, and you have to have the people there to have a fully alive city. You could do like a personification kind of thing, but it would be really like figurative and metaphorical. And you'd be like basing it on a lot of like stereotypes about the city. Like what's the stereotypical New Yorker like, you know? Yeah, that's the only way I can think of doing it. I feel like this was one of the things in City of Lies that I wanted to feel more of was that the weight of the populace had some sway over what was happening. Because in a real population center that size even if the ruling class want to give orders those aren't going to necessarily be effective yes yeah because you have to have the cooperation of the the populace right and i think that this is something alex that you and i end up debating sometimes where i have this (sighs) i have this opinion okay (laughs) that if you get a sufficiently complicated organization um it has a sentience of its own outside of individual human beings that comprise it And my position on it, the last time Macy and I had this uh, (laughs) conversation was on a road trip. It was like a 10-hour drive from my house to uh, the Nebulas conference uh, last year. We had a wonderful time uh, arguing (laughs) about whether this was true. And the position that I took was that it... a, A corporation can never be sentient. A corporation is made up of individuals and individual decisions and choices and actions and i feel like a city is a similar construct and i feel like you know a religion might be a similar construct if the people are acting together for a cause there's a lot of ways that you can add up the sum of a group of people and get something that is really wholly different in my opinion to the individuals and i think that's a little bit what the city born great is saying Hmm. Or at least it's an it's an image and an idea that I like to play with um, about like making that metaphor literal. Yeah, yeah. I found related to this, I found a quote from Plato. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to be our, our very fancy uh, 
elite kind of Eesh. academic person here today. Very fancy, bringing oh. up the hero scavos and Plato and oh. all sorts of things. Um, so fancy. Uh, and the the quote is: "The city is what it is because our citizens are what they are." And is that from is that from him discussing like utopia, like his ideal? city i i'm gonna be straight up honest with you i just found this quote because i wanted to sound smart i don't know what it's from i don't know the context of it i just googled quotes about cities <laughs> it's a good quote <laughs> so the, the question that i most wanted to ask when we were thinking about city as character is why use a city what can you do story-wise like thinking of it from a craft point of view in an urban environment in particular that you can't do anywhere else everything and i came up with lots of dot points <laughs> fucking love cities i really just i love cities yeah and like what i love the most about city of lies is that it definitely had a thesis in that direction and it said this is a story about a siege mm. and a siege is a siege story takes the idea of city as both protection and cage mm. it says we are in here and yes. the enemy or the opposing force is out there but also we are stuck in here and we yep. can't get out and that sort of turns it distills a city down to what it is which is people inside a wall defining themselves opposed to the people who are outside the city right and i think that the whole storyline of city of lies really is a combination of the breakdown of the heroes gamos if you're looking at the marriage between city and countryside um and mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. what you were saying earlier freya about the link between a city and its subordinate uh, satellites yeah, it's it's making a big deal out of a city, uh, basically the rural-urban divide. Well, also the imperial divide, the the conqueror, because it's very very clear that this is a race of outsiders who have come in and conquered this land, right? Yeah, and actually reading City of Lies, so Sam is an Australian, mm -hmm. and reading City of Lies as an Australian, it's very clear that that it's quite a pointedly Australian take on the themes of oppression and inequality in regards to taking someone else's land because the whole complaint of the people who are putting the city under siege is that they have been denied the ability to connect with and properly inhabit their own land and their religion is very based on the spirits of the land itself and their ability to properly look after the land and that is an incredibly important tenant of the Australian Aboriginal people mm -hmm. and their culture and so reading this you could definitely see where that had come from mm -hmm. and that particular particular type of oppression to do with displacing people from the land that is their inheritance. And I think that that's um, frequently a theme you see played with in urbanization stories and in industrialization stories is the severing of one's connection to the land have you got an example what am i thinking of i'm thinking a little bit and i don't know why of holly black's tithe and her pixie girl who smokes cigarettes and poisons herself with iron and is kind of cut away from her powers and thus doesn't have connection to any of her powers until she is taken away from the city again um alex mm, and is that, making faces I'm, at me i'm yeah i'm also thinking of the scene at the end of um return of the king the scouring mm. of the shire where they like return to this like idyllic uh or what should be an idyllic like very rural um quiet pastoral homeland and find that it has been overtaken and that industrialization has sort of come to it and part of it is reclaiming their land from uh, the in invaded, I believe it was like Saruman's orcs who had invaded and taken over, um, but it's been a while since I read Lord of the Rings. Mm. I'm also thinking of the non-fiction uh, Seeing Like a State. And I mean, you're usually thinking of seeing like a state. I'm usually <laughs> thinking of seeing like a state. No, but specifically um, the imposition of scientific farming methods uh, without nuance. Yes. Uh, that the city feels that they understand how to farm better than people who actually are and in many ways they scientifically do but there's still things that are lost and knowledge that is lost and sometimes the respect between the elite in the cities and the people in the satellites is lost hmm. and what you were saying about holly black's tie and that sense of 
what do you do if your true powers traditionally come from something and a city gets in the way? That tension, I think, underlies a lot of urban fantasy mm-hmm. as a genre. So if we're talking about the actual yes. genre of urban fantasy, there's always – you have to come down on one side or other. Is it a – they have the fae and the mythological beings and the magical underworld managed to integrate itself successfully with modern day cities and civilization or is this sense of something being lost or destroyed or threatened because of that city and a lot of the world building that i find enjoyable in urban fantasy is looking at where the author has chosen to take that tension i feel like and i only know dresden files from reading dresden marconi slash (laughs) but i feel like dresden files uh, plays with this some right the wizard whose car breaks down constantly and if he gets angry in an elevator it's going to fall with him in it and can't use a telephone that's more modern than the 70s um, <laughs> because his power is tied to things which are antithetical to technology. Mm. Rivers of London does some fun stuff with that as well. I love those books. I'm so yeah, excited. Great. But the good thing about urban fantasy as well is that it is another way for, for writers to show that love, hate, or at least thorough knowledge of a place. So Sean and Maguire's um, October Day series are set mm-hmm. more or less around the San Francisco Bay area. And oh, hang on! I just need to look up something. There was a there was an Australian urban fantasy series. Hang on, pause. I need to look up. While you're is. thinking, there's also the um, Borderline by Michelle Baker and the yes, the other two. LA. That's which is set in Los Angeles and is very very much about like the magic of Los Angeles and the intersection of Los Angeles with fairy. Ah, here we go. Uh, Angela Slater's book set in Brisbane in Mm. Australia, which is a city that is not really featured much in even many Australian narratives. And it was absolutely wonderful to read the first book called Vigil, which has that sort of love of city and weaving the magic through a familiar place. And I'd never seen that done for an Australian city before. That was great. And I think that to me, this is what sets apart the truly great urban fantasy is that it couldn't be put in just any city. Mm, yes, for sure. It has to be specific. I want to care about that city. I want the powers to mean something in that locale, like the way that Rivers of London's um, spirits of the rivers are so specific to London and the history and damage of London. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Well, I think, I'm thinking now what you said about that idea of industrialization is taking mm-hmm. away. And the Ankh-Morpork books, especially the, la- the latter ones, take mm-hmm. a bit more of a rose-tinted view of that, I think. It's more about here are the ways in which modernization is actually improving people's lives, or at least trying to, com- coming right. from an impulse of trying to. And I think that Ankh-Morpork to me is coming out the other side of the industrialization. Like when we first meet Ankh-Morpork, and I use that phrase deliberately because Ankh-Morpork is a person, mm-hmm. it has, it is so grubby and disgusting and dangerous and it is, you can lose your life as easily as you can use your pocket watch. And over the course of the books, we do see it kind of gain more respect for the differences of its citizens. Uh, we see the watch begin to grow and become a power and it starts to listen as well as force itself on others, I think. And a lot of that is shown as coming from veterinary's instincts. Mm-hmm. There is a very kind of Heros-Gamos relationship that is about how the city has changed under veterinary and is compared to what was happening in the city under the corrupt patricians yes. who came yep. before him. And Nightwatch in particular uh, draws that parallel really directly by putting Vimes back in time and saying, here's how the city was, here is the corrupt person who was at the head of it. And it says this is why. The, the, the changes that have been made in the city are because Vetinari has this urge to improve things, even though he is a despot himself. I love our Machiavellian overthinker. Mm-hmm. What about other kinds of stories that urban environments lend themselves to? And I was thinking particularly of procedurals and crime and i know you can have sort of like cozy small village murder mysteries but there are certain types of procedural stories uh that i think you have to have a city for you can't talk about edinburgh in literature without talking about ian rankin's books which uh which are classic mystery thriller crime procedurals but they're so married to that city and there's a lot of the tv shows like um luther with our favorite murder princess yay yes uh which is so wedded to london um, and it wouldn't work anywhere else. Yeah, and it's also just about what kinds of crime you get 
yes. in a place of that density, so a gangster story. So I haven't read Fonda Lee's book, Jade City, which I think mm-hmm. won the – did it win the Nebula or the World, World Fantasy? It won the World Fantasy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about, I think, a crime family set in a fictional city, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. But that's the kind of thing that you can do in a secondary world right. city. You can come up with the kind of narratives that are about – gangster organized crime families you can do things with superheroes because of the potential for destruction yeah so sarah coon's heroin complex books which are again sort of a love letter to the san francisco bay area plus demon portals and superheroes <laughs> and also things like you know we were talking about berlin as a city as a city right. setting <laughs> for spy stories and i think you're totally right that particular stories do lend themselves to particular things like if i was going to write if I was going to cash in and write my uh, tech urban fantasy books, they would have to be in the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, where else would they be? If I wanted to write um, musical theatre, I would have to be in New York or London or maybe LA. Mm-hmm. Like that, there are certain settings that really do lend themselves to types of story. But I'd also love to talk a little bit about city fiction as social commentary. Mm, I think we touched a little bit on this already, talking about how City of Lies talks about inequality. And the uh, city eats town model of mortal (laughs) engines. (laughs) But I think one of the things I love about cities, uh, like I was saying earlier, is that it's this mixing of these different different societies all living in one place, right? Layered on top of each other like an onion. Um, And figuring out how do they live like that? How do you make that work in such a crowded environment? Yes. And um, I have a cool piece of the, your week, your uh, piece of trivia for this week. Uh, which Alex's is that, cool facts, fun, fun corner, <laughs> fun facts, fun facts, trivia corner. Um, so this is kind of why we, as a civilization, developed manners and an etiquette. Because when you have people needing to live in a small, packed together environment for economic reasons because it's a major trading post or because it's a major center of government you then have to sort of figure out how to live with each other without you know constantly bumping into each other without murdering everyone um and so that's how we develop things like like manners like letting someone go through a door before you or there's also this really cool uh tumblr post that keeps floating around with a midwesterner complaining that nobody will chat to them in the supermarket and yorker saying i swear to god i'm going to knife you if you stand in front of my cereal boxes talking about your baby any longer because one Uh, of the things that's that is considered polite in new york is because like no one has any personal space whatsoever you sort of like keep your mouth shut and give each other as much psychic space as possible but it's also time time is respect in a city um whereas i was i remember this uh non-fiction book called watching the english which is a kind of an anthropology of the english i I love love that book it's It's, so good it's fucking hilarious especially if you know any english people because it's unfortunately correct and like burningly (laughs) correct and like i read i read it i read it cover cover and was like i understand my mother (laughs) (laughs) but my point was um it draws a lot of parallels between the population density of the uk and of japan Mm. And of the etiquette models in those countries about how you behave in Tokyo and London and how close together that is. But can you give any, like, examples? That is fascinating. Oh, um, you don't acknowledge that other people exist on the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Even though like you it's... are a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of space away from them or else, like, smooshed up directly next to them. Right, Having right. been on the trains in both Tokyo and London, that's basically what it is. That's exactly what I meant by kind of psychic space. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes, and when we were talking about this idea of existing in very close proximity and that being what a city is, I had this like amazing thought that brought mm. together a whole lot of books that I'm about to name drop at you. <laughs> to me, a city story has to have that element of many things in one space. Yes. And that tensions that that creates. So we talked about cities with history, the past existing at the same time as the present. Yes. And City of Stairs does that. Even more literally, it says there are two cities in the same space. One of them is the city of now, and one of them is the city that was Mm -hmm. before the gods were killed. Mm -hmm. And there are so many stories in the specfic genre that do this beautifully. And I'm thinking of, again, you've got in urban fantasy that tension between the mundane or the human and the magical underworld that is existing beneath it, sometimes Mm -hmm. even literally beneath it. So Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman is probably the 
classic example of that and it draws on this obsession that we have of cities having sewers and tunnels <laughs> underneath them, this literal city beneath the city. But then you think of other places that use a light-dark duology. So one of the mm-hmm. books I almost suggested as a tentpole for this episode is Twilight Robbery by Frances Harding, who is uh, the queen of Macy and Mice Heart. Uh, Brace which is yourselves, a story listeners. About... This is just going to ruin your TBR pile. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, Twilight Robbery is an amazing book, and it is about a city that has two populations existing in the same place. Ooh. And because half of them are the day people who are allowed out in the city during the day, and then the other half are the night people who are allowed to use the city during the night. And it's basically a way of having timeshare of <laughs> a single physical space, literally huh. two populations and two cities that are in the same physical space. And the book The City and the City by China Mieville does this even mm-hmm. more so by saying there are two cities, a twin cities that exist in different dimensions in the same physical space. And people can travel between them. And it's about a police pro- it's a police procedural right. about a murder where the jurisdictions are a bit murky and the people having to investigate a murder and which of these two cities did it take place in. The other one that you're talking just brought to mind was V.E. Schwab's um, Darker Shade of Magic. Oh, yes. Which has Alex's favourite coat. Oh, it's a great coat. So um, in Shades of Magic, there are four versions of London and there's this uh, character who can travel between the four different versions of London. and why is it always London? <laughs> why is it always, it London? Is always London? Everyone everyone loves a London. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this one coat, and when he turns it inside out, it's a different coat, except he has four different coats layered on each other. It's it's basically a magical um, like Rubik's Cube coat thing yes. that makes him be able to blend in across all the Londons. It's, it's one of the coolest props in any piece of fiction. It is. And I once almost like sewed a tiny little doll version to figure out if I could make it work in real life. Well, it's like Alex. the door opening magic in... Um... The Hell- in Hell's Moving Castle, mm. where the same house exists in yes. different places and you yes. just put, uh, turn the doorknob or inside up to open the door into a different place. I love but it. To me, that's, that's, the, that's the joy of um, science fiction and fantasy and exploring cities because it takes this idea of many things having to exist in a small space and then says, how can we make this figurative in an interestingly magical mm. way? And I think that... You know, we do have multiple cities in one city. You go into to, to Chinatown, you go into mm-hmm. any of the, the neighborhoods that are their own kind of microcosms in the big cities in America, across Europe. And you cannot argue that London is one thing, that New York is one thing, that Paris is one thing. And Yeah, but even, even outside of neighborhoods, you can have two different people walk down the same street oh, yeah. in New York and London and be living in a different city. Oh, yes because of who they are and the experience that they are having. And if you're not playing with that, then what is the point of being set in a city? I want to see it. Um, I enjoyed the part in City of Lies where the exceedingly spoiled, privileged main character walks through a neighbourhood with the um, religious signs of the native populace and starts to realize that these houses have been abandoned and something has happened here and they just didn't notice because they just never go there yeah they're starting Mm -hmm. to realize that there has been a second city in their familiar city all along but they haven't actually had their eyes open to recognize it and i have this fun quote if we're going to be talking about like cities with history as well um which rereading the city born great reminded me of which is that in Europe, a hundred miles is a long way. In America, a hundred years is a long time. That's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's American, about, it's that's about true. The dimension, it's about the dimensions of time and space. So if you've got something like London, it's so huge. It's an iceberg. It's an iceberg, and it's because it's got the layers of all its different eras piled and on you top know, of each other. What I want to see is someone who is writing in their lane, but I want to see the iceberg of Mexico City with its actual predecessor, Mm -hmm. right? I want to see people challenging the idea that that iceberg does not exist on the American continents because it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of been wiped away. Yeah. Yeah, and thinking about writing historical fantasy, the reason I think so many things are set in London is because you can choose which 
part of this city, which time do I want to talk about? And you've got a different aesthetic, you've got different social preoccupations, and then taking it another step further, you know, writing about the Regency era mm. from the point of view of one of Georgette Heyer's normal characters is very different to something like what Zen Cho was doing, which is mm-hmm. writing about the same era uh, from the point of view of people who are mixed race or people of colour and the experience that they were having and the London that they were living in was very different. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, the seeds of the book that I'm working on at the moment and why it is where it is was something a reaction to why is all steampunk always set in London? Because that's boring and reductionist. And my family, my grandmother is from Naples. When I visited Naples a few years back, I had the opportunity to go down underneath the city, like we were talking about with the, there's always an underneath, right? Um, into the aqueducts, which were pre-Roman. Oh, cool. So they were Greek. They were 3,000 years old, and they were still there. Um, And not every city has the same length of history, but to me, all cities have history and have change, and that's something that I want to see signs of in your fiction, if you're going to convince me that your imaginary city is a real city, or if you're going to convince me that your real city is a real city that you know and understand. I want to see the layers. Yeah, I would agree. I think that a lot of fantasy tends to sort of have a a snapshot of what is the now of the city. And maybe there's some about the history, but you don't get a whole lot of like a a sense of trajectory for where the city has been and where it might be going. Mm -hmm, Completely. But what are some fun and weird examples of successfully building these cities well china mieville is excellent at it he, um, he I can't really remember the is name of the city in perdido street station i think it's like las caru new carusen or something like that okay. i can't remember exactly but that is an example of a city where you absolutely feel it with all of your senses and it is oh, yeah. deeply weird oh yeah mm. deeply weird and deeply deeply vibrant i don't remember if i finished that book but i remember being incredibly just like overwhelmed by the amount of detail that he put into it yeah Yeah. and i think look honestly i i I finished it i didn't enjoy it enormously (laughs) in terms of the story and the characters Mm. but you could probably read like the first quarter of it and just be like yes i understand what you're doing with this city now that's great and then peace out for sure i was just remembering the fifth season city before everything falls apart oh yes that one was also very strong uh, we've talked a lot about big cities. I th- would like to also uh, mention a, a smaller sit- sort of town, uh, Nightvale, which I think is one of the um, an extremely strongly built town. You have a real sense for both the the um, the town as a kind of communal entity and also the individuals who live in the town and landmarks of the town you could almost go i mean and people have drawn maps of it i think that the medium of fake community radio is such a great way to get that across oh yeah and there's some beautiful uh fic that really expands on that i really love uh he says he is an experimental theologian is my eternal wreck for night veil Because it does expand the place and it makes it feel even more real Mm -hmm. and just some place that you could go and explore. We tentpolled that for episode two, I believe, didn't we? We didn't tentpole that. Did we tentpole it? Yeah, that was was, uh, was, uh, uh, taxonomies and personality taxonomies and and Hogwarts houses. And it was, so we talked about demons and that was our, our demons fic. Because it, it, it is a merge with Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy. Yeah. And as a short plug, I can't wait until you two get to Robert Jackson Bennett's second book, which has another amazing, awesome, like, Scandinavian port city. Ooh. Ooh. It's yeah, I'm cool. looking forward to reading the rest of that series. It's about what's his name, right? Yes. Yes. Cool. Cool. Oh, he was good. Well, it's and not course... from his point of view. Okay. It's from hmm. the uh, general's point of view. She was also amazing. Nice. So I'm I looking love forward her. to that. And I think you can't talk about uh, imaginative, fun, weird cities without mentioning Atello Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is not a book so much as an exercise in <laughs> magical city world building. <laughs> have you read it? No. Nope. I have not, but I believe you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's, it's basically just a series of very short vignettes, in, and each one, it's like a page and a half max, and in each one, he invents 
a ma- an, an imaginary magical city that has Ooh. something weird about it, like it only exists between the hours of two and four, or everyone who goes there undergoes some kind of transformation. Like each of them, you read it and you think, my God, I would read an entire novel with this conceit. And then he's just like, on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. There's actually yeah. a nonfiction book that I'm trying to remember. Yes. Um, called The Great Cities of History or The Great Cities in History by John Ooh. Julius Norwich. That was on your coffee table when I came to visit you. Yes. And I peeked at it. It's gorgeous. And it has little, like you were saying, Freya, little like three to five page snippets about all sorts of cool cities um, across history and across all continents of the world with illustrations by experts on that history. So if you like nonfiction, and I know I'm I'm the main nerd on that front, it's a really exciting one. I also like to use it sometimes as like world building inspiration. Cool. So when we were deciding on tent poles, I kept trying to suggest um, tent poles, which we did not pick. Uh, And all (laughs) of mine were about more like ship as character rather Mm. than city as character. Um, For example, Firefly, uh, the the ship is a character in Firefly or uh, the the sort of living sentient space whale ship Moya on on Farscape. So what do you guys feel is the difference between city as character versus ship as character? And why did you keep shooting down my ideas for temples, guys? Because there are are space cities, right? Like, give me a space station. Give me uh, the first season of The Expanse. I will Mm. buy you that as a city. You know, the asteroids are cities. But ships are not cities. They don't have the longevity they don't have the generations born and dying on them give me a generation ship and maybe i'll call that a city see for me it's it's number one is the scale but Mm -hmm. the other part is the immobility a city i know this is weird with the mortal engines thing but a city (laughs) is something that other people come to and something like serenity i think you're right in that it has that element of being a microcosm of there is a character that comes through because of the people who are there. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that those people are being conveyed from other environments to other environments to other environments via the medium of that ship, to me, that takes away from the cityness of a right. city, is that it is its own environment and an entire story rises and falls within its environment. Yes. And that's, yeah, if you have 10,000 people on your ship for 100 years, that's a city. If you have five people on your ship for 20 years, that's not a city. Yeah, hmm. that makes sense. And it's interesting. I'll I was thinking that. about Battlestar Galactica, mm. uh, which obviously is more sort of military space opera than anything else. But it is also a story of a flotilla of people that represent all that is left of a civilization. And there is almost an edge of cityness to it in some of the stories it tells. Most of the stories are more military in, in VSG. But there are some episodes where it goes further afield and actually digs into the existence of this very disparate group of people across yes. these spaceships. And it talks about what are the, you know, how is this set Resources up? And it's almost and... city-like. Yeah. Yes, it definitely does. And when I'm thinking about, we, we struggled a little bit, you might have noticed, listeners, to find fan fiction that we really felt dealt with the idea of cities and cities as characters. But we did keep coming back to the idea of Stargate Atlantis as mm-hmm. being a city. Mm. And yep. I'm still not... I don't think we convinced ourselves that it was. I think it is, but we couldn't find a fic that focused on that. Yeah. I feel like, to me, it isn't in the context of the show because it's not long-lived enough. Yeah. I, I liked it because it had that sense of, again, it's an abandoned city. So That's it's fair. about new people ex- you know, developing their own civilization. I think by the end of Stargate Atlantis, you'll be able to describe the people living in Atlantis as a city with their own culture and their own sense of what this city is. But it's overlaid on the fact that the ancients left behind this city. And so they are stumbling across the ruins, even though it is technological, of the city's own history. But there is nobody there who has a direct throughput link to that history. They have to kind of fake it with this idea of having a genetic link that you can make the technology work. But I found that really interesting that it's a city where the history is, there's a huge gap between one population and the next. Mm -hmm. I think for me, a piece of media that did that better uh, than Atlantis was Mass Effect's Citadel. Because um, in Mass Effect, the entire of uni- like the universe's civilizations, not a single planet's civilizations, live on a cycle of uh, the rise of biological species who then create artificial intelligence species who then wipe out the biologicals and it goes around again. 
but the Citadel is this massive space station concealed in a nebula that sort of predates these cycles and is outside of them. And so these new uh, species, as they rise up, will come out, will find the remains of the technology that was left behind, and will inhabit the Citadel and make it a city again. But there are still these um, remnants of the previous civilizations for them to find or not find. Again, that's that's turning the metaphor of a city always being layered with its own history into something much more concrete. Mm. Instead of having generations of people and eras of people that never leave the city, you're turning those eras into very distinct, and now this population, and now they've left, and now this population, and now they've left. <laughs> Which again is something you can do when you have the speculative genre to play with. everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I don't have too much more to add about cities specifically, but know that I will continue to periodically fight Macy about whether corporations have sentience. They do not. But, as always, we have some other great things to talk about on upcoming episodes. The next episode, two weeks hence, on April 10th, will feature Time Travel Fix-It Fix. So if you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the excellent novel To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. Definitely read that one. It's fantastic. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations. Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to chip in a dollar or two to support our nascent cough drop habit from all the yelling that we do, uh, you can find us on Patreon. And by the way, I was thinking about you the other day. Just wanted to say that. <laughs>